Axios Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Brought to you by Facebook. I'm Dan Permac. On today's show, de-escalating trade tensions could help China's version of Twitch go public in the U.S. and remembering Ross Perot, tech entrepreneur. But first, the Jeffrey Epstein mess just keeps getting messier. So the White House is now fully embroiled in the disgusting legal saga of Jeffrey Epstein, the well-connected money manager indicted this week on sex trafficking charges. Now, most of that focuses on Labor Secretary Alex Acosta, who by all accounts gave Epstein a sweetheart plea deal back in 2007 when Acosta was U.S. attorney in Florida, and he also failed to notify victims as was legally required. President Trump yesterday defended Acosta, but Axios reports that the labor secretary already was on thin ice with the White House for slow walking deregulation, and this could be the proverbial straw that breaks Acosta's back. And then there's Trump himself, who used to party with Epstein, and who once called him a terrific guy, even though he now says he's, quote, not a fan. But even beyond politics, Epstein cultivated a wide range of powerful friends and associates, essentially managing to do terrible things almost in plain sight, even apparently after that 2007 plea. Private equity titan Leon Black, for example, let Epstein continue to manage his money for years. The bottom line? There are a lot of sleepless nights in the Acela Corridor right now, as questions are being asked if others are just guilty by association or actually guilty. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with investigative journalist Vicki Ward, who wrote the first long profile of Jeffrey Epstein back in 2003 for Vanity Fair, but who now claims that some vital allegations didn't make that piece's final cut. But first, this. Maybe you've noticed when you see an ad on Facebook, there's a tool inside the ad called Why Am I Seeing This Ad? To learn more about it, visit facebook.com slash about slash ads. We're joined now by Vicki Ward, an investigative journalist and the author of Kushner, Inc. Jeffrey Epstein gets talked about or written about a lot as a billionaire. But do we really know if he's really got that much money or even really going back how he got so rich managing wealth for others? We don't. It's a great question. The source of you know, the trappings, he, he clearly has the trappings of wealth, right? He lives in the, uh, well, I, I think he doesn't any longer have the, the, the enormous Boeing that he once had, but he has, he certainly has a plane. He has the largest private residence in Manhattan. It was a former school. He has a ranch that he once told me looked like, made the, the New York home look like a shack, the ranches in New Mexico. And he owns an island in the Virgin Islands. But where the money comes from to fund all of this has always remained a mystery. He has boasted that he takes a commission from billionaires only. He's never identified which billionaires and that he is in charge of running their finances and running their private estates, but he's not qualified as a lawyer, let alone as a, as a trust and estates lawyer. And if he's trading on behalf of billionaires. There is no footprint of him in the markets. Furthermore, the way that he lives, and we can tell a certain amount just from the indictments over the years and the stories of victims, this is a man living basically a life of leisure. He's not somebody focused on looking at, you know, following the markets in, in real time in scrupulous detail. It doesn't seem to have the time for that. So it's very unclear. 
But there's got to be a reason these billionaires stick with them, right? And we know a few, at least who did stick with them. Len Wexner, obviously the L brand CEO, uh, Leon Black, who runs Apollo Global Management, used him even after the original plea deal from 2007, kept him managing his billions. Have you ever spoken with any of these billionaires to get a sense of why they stick with him? Is he simply good at his job, even though it doesn't seem that he should be able to be good at his job? So several things. I did speak to Les Wexner back in the day when I reported this in 2002, and he gave me what I would describe as a lot of guff about Jeffrey seeing patterns and things and Jeffrey's mind being a compliment to his. But none of it makes any sense. In fact, I happen to know that Les Wexner did due diligence through Kroll you know, the private investigations company on Jeffrey Epstein and Kroll discovered that Jeffrey Epstein's resume was completely bogus and Les Wexner hired him anyway, which is very odd. And the same goes for Leon Black. I mean, one of the things that, you know, people in New York in that world have always sort of speculated is that Jeffrey Epstein has a lot of leverage over people. You know, when you invite models, young women to parties, you know, you potentially put people in compromising situations. Knowledge is power. So speaking of knowledge, and you talked about the work you'd done and the story you wrote, uh, particularly for Vanity Fair, you know, 15 years ago now on Jeffrey Epstein. And you've made some news this week by talking about how what wasn't in that story as much as what was in that story, and namely the allegations from two sisters, and correct me if I get any of this wrong, two sisters, when one was 16 years old, was sexually assaulted by Jeffrey Epstein. And you said that part got spiked in the story. Something then editor Graydon Carter says, acknowledges it got spiked, but basically said from his perspective, the reporting wasn't good enough is, is kind of what he said. How do you respond? to what Graydon has said? Well, that's just not true. And I have all the transcripts from that reporting, hours and hours and hours of it. I think that what happened was that Jeffrey Epstein was a known quantity, albeit a known mysterious quantity, and that, you know, back then, Graydon didn't know who these women were. So even though the reporting absolutely was there, there were, in fact, I discovered, you know, I was going through the transcripts yesterday, not just three people on the record, four, if not five. I think that it was a different era. I think that, you know, a choice got made where, you know, Jeffrey Epstein had made it plain that he was clearly sensitive about these allegations appearing in the story, and he was the known quantity, and they weren't. At the time, did you consider bringing that piece of it somewhere else to a different publication? I left it up to the women, said, what would you like me to do? And they had been afraid of being discredited. And I think they felt that what happened was, you know, played that out, right? They were. Jeffrey Epstein succeeded in making them look you know, not believable. And so for the moment, you know, they did not, they wanted to drop the fight. In fact, one of them years later did come forward. She actually, a few months ago, did sign an affidavit in a separate defamation case concerning Jeffrey Epstein's then-girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell. She, she has actually gone public with what happened to her, but it took her 16 years. You tweeted out either today or yesterday that obviously there's a lot of powerful people who have been connected to Jeffrey Epstein, who he knows, and, and basically suggested there are more dominoes to fall here. Given that Epstein has been historically fairly, what's the term, um, circumspect, I guess, when, when it comes to at least revealing his relationships in term, with powerful people. As you said, he's kind of kept those under wraps. Do we have reason to believe this investigation is going to get into the, call them co-conspirators or whatever else, these connections, or if Epstein himself takes the fall outside of the potential political fall that Alex Acosta could take? Well, I think any time the word conspiracy appears on an indictment, that means that there are conspirators. 
And I think that Jeffrey Epstein, he was operating in plain sight all of these years. I mean, what was shocking in a way about the indictment that was unsealed on Monday was there was nothing new in it. This has all been so well known and so well known by the world in which he operates. I think that, in fact, what you're now going to see, you know, this is the beginning. You are going to see, you know, a pile of dominoes topple, actually. Vicki Ward, thank you so much for joining us. My final two, right after this. A lot of people want to know how their information is being used for online ads. That's why Facebook has a feature called Why Am I Seeing This Ad? But that's just the start. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash ads. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is Douyu, a Chinese live streaming platform for gamers, which is kind of like China's answer to Twitch. So the company planned to go public in the US in May, but then put the whole thing on hold after President Trump tweeted a threat to raise tariffs on all sorts of Chinese imports. Now, the tariffs are unlikely to have affected Douyu directly, but the idea of going public into an escalated trade war felt needlessly risky. Now though, trade tensions are back to a slow simmer. After Trump met the G20 with Chinese President Xi Jinping, and Douyu has restarted its IPO process. If successful, the company could be valued at around $4.5 billion. And finally this morning, Ross Perot has died at the age of 89, and most of the coverage has, understandably, focused on his third-party presidential runs in the 1990s, plus some of his early and very vocal opposition to NAFTA. But lost a bit has been how the Texan was also one of America's most successful tech entrepreneurs. First, he founded a company called Electronic Data Systems, which later was sold for $2.5 billion to General Motors. Then later, he founded Perot Systems, a rival to his first company, and Dell bought that one in 2009 for nearly $4 billion. Perot may have looked and sounded like Dallas Oil, but he was just as much Silicon Valley. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great national pina colada day, and we'll be back on Friday with another Pro Rata Podcast.